Well, good morning and Merry Christmas, everyone. Glad to see you here today. So to start things off this morning, I want to tell you about a guy named Chris Siriani. Chris owns a restaurant in Erie, Pennsylvania. And a couple of years ago, he was, he was sick and tired of customers coming into his restaurant and being very rude to his staff. And Chris got so fed up with all the rude behavior that he posted a, a sign on the front door of his restaurant that said, be kind or leave. If you can't treat people in this building the same way that you, that you want them to treat you, then we kindly ask that you leave and take your business elsewhere. Our staff is our family and they deserve better. Kind people, you are welcome here. Well, a picture of Chris's sign ended up on social media and it went viral and it caught the attention of some news reporters. And soon there were articles appearing in the local paper like the Erie Times and even in national papers like the Wall Street Journal. And in one of the articles, when Chris was asked why he posted this sign, he said, well, it just seems like the problem of poor manners and rude behavior has grown lately. Now, do you agree with Chris? Does it seem to you that poor manners and rude behavior has become more prevalent and more of a problem in recent years? If you agree with Chris, you're not alone. 85% of Americans think that people are ruder now than they were 10 years ago. And 75% say that having ba bad manners is no longer unusual. Now, I have confidence in you all. I have confidence in you all that you have good manners and that you know how to use them. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put my assumption about you all to the test. I'm going to present you with this little scenario, and then I want you to tell me how you would, or at least how you should, respond. Okay, so there's going to be a little audience participation here. And kids, get ready, because you're going to be a part of this too. All right, so here's, here's the scenario. It's, it's nice and simple. Somebody gives you a gift. Now, what two words should you say when somebody gives you a gift? Just go ahead, yell them out. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, well, thank you, because you just proved me right, okay? You do have good manners, and you know how to use them. Now, sadly, even though we may have good manners and know how to use them, during the Christmas season, we sometimes forget to say thank you. It's a, it's a busy time of the year. Right? There's the shopping, and there's the wrapping, there's the cooking, there's the decorating, there's the traveling. You get the picture. You know it because you're living it, right? This is a busy time of the year. And sometimes in the busyness of the Christmas season, we either forget to say thank you for a gift that we receive, or we just don't take the time to say thank you. According to one survey that was conducted last year, 25% of people who received a Christmas gift in the mail did not take the time to say thank you to the person who sent it. I don't know about you, but that just doesn't sit right with me. And if the Apostle Paul were here, I don't think it would sit right with him either. You see, we should say thank you when we receive a gift. In the Bible, the Apostle Paul, he not only talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, but he demonstrates it. If you brought a Bible with you today, I invite you to take it out and open it up to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And as you're turning in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, I just want to tell you that here at City View Church, we've been studying through the book of Acts for the past few months. The book of Acts, it covers about the first 30 years or so of, of church history after Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven. And we're breaking from our usual pattern today. Uh, but I will tell you that last week in our, in our study of the book of Acts, we were introduced to this guy named Saul. 
If you remember this guy named Saul, he was a young man and uh, he actually supported the persecution and even the murder of Christians. Well, what we're going to see in the weeks ahead as we get further into the book of Acts is that God starts working in Saul's life and Saul ends up becoming a follower of Jesus. So talk about a radical change. The guy who was persecuting Christians becomes one. Now, this guy Saul, he also went by the name Paul. And after he becomes a follower of Jesus, he spends the rest of his life traveling all around the Roman Empire telling people about Jesus. And as he went into different cities to tell people about Jesus, he would start churches there. And after the church was up and running, he would move on to the next city. But then what he would do is he would write letters back to those cities that he had visited and to those churches that he had planted. Thirteen of these letters that Paul wrote ended up in the New Testament of our Bibles. And in one of the cities that Paul started the church in was the city of Corinth in Greece. And once Paul moved on from Corinth, he wrote a couple of letters back to the church at Corinth. We call these letters in our Bibles the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Well, we're going to be looking at 2nd Corinthians today. And in chapters 8 and 9 of 2nd Corinthians, Paul's reminding the, the Christians there in Corinth that they wanted to, and they even promised to, to send a financial gift to the church in Jerusalem. You see, the church in Jerusalem, they, they had fallen on some hard times. And, and when the Christians in Corinth heard about this, they wanted, to, they wanted to help those Christians in Jerusalem out. And they even promised to send them this financial gift. And so Paul's telling the, the Christians in Corinth that he's going to be swinging by their city sometime soon. And he, he wants them to have that gift ready so that he could pick it up and take it with him to Jerusalem. Now, to encourage these Christians in Corinth to follow through on their promise... Paul tells them in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, in verse 11, that their gift will produce thanksgiving to God. And then in verse 12, Paul takes it up a notch, and he says that this gift will produce an overflowing of many thanksgivings to God. And in verses 13 and 14, Paul says that when the Christians in Jerusalem receive this gift, they will glorify God. So Paul says all of this to the, to the Corinthian tr uh, Christians in verses 11 to 14 because he knows that receiving a gift should prompt us to say thank you. And just as I had confidence in you to say thank you when you receive a gift, Paul's saying that he has confidence in the Christians in Jerusalem that they will say thank you when they receive this gift from the Corinthians. And Paul has confidence that they will say thank you to God because God is the one who has given the Corinthians the resources that they would be giving, and he's the one who gave them the desire to give this gift in the first place. Now, in the midst of all this talk about the Jerusalem Christians giving thanks to God for a gift that they will receive, in 2 Corinthians 9.15, Paul spontaneously yells out an expression of thankfulness himself. 2 Corinthians 9.15, this is going to be our scripture verse for today. We're just going to look at his one verse today. You can look at it in your Bible, or you can look at it on the screen. In the midst of all this talk about how the Jerusalem Christians will give thanks to God for this financial gift that they will receive, Paul spontaneously yells out, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. How about you say that with me? Adults, say it with me. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now, kids, you say it with me. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And everybody... Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. 
Now, this indescribable gift that comes to Paul's mind as he's writing this letter to the Corinthians, this, this indescribable gift that just causes him to yell out this, this expression of thankfulness to God, this is the gift of Jesus. And it's the gift of forgiveness for our sins. And it's the gift of peace with God and eternal life that Christians have in Jesus. And we'll talk more about this gift in just a moment. But, but first, I just want to say that Paul yells out, thanks be to God, because because he knows he doesn't deserve this gift. Remember, Paul, at one time, he was persecuting Christians. He was persecuting followers of Jesus. And because of that, in one of his other letters, Paul calls himself the chief of all sinners. So if there was ever a person who didn't deserve a gift from God, Paul knew that he was that guy. But God still gave him this incredible, indescribable gift of Jesus. And so that leads to the main point that I want to make today as we look at 2 Corinthians 9.15. The main point I want to make this morning is this. Because God has given the indescribable gift of Jesus to undeserving people, we should give thanks this Christmas. Because God has given the indescribable gift of Jesus to undeserving people, we should give thanks this Christmas. Now, as we look at this verse, as we look at 2 Corinthians 9.15 this morning, I'm going to elaborate on that statement. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you three suggestions when it comes to giving thanks for the indescribable gift of Jesus this Christmas. Three suggestions. The first one is this. We should give thanks to the giver of the gift. When we give thanks this Christmas, we should give thanks to the giver of the gift. Notice in 2 Corinthians 9.15, Paul says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So I want you to notice, Paul, Paul isn't just thankful for the indescribable gift of Jesus. Paul expresses his thankfulness to someone. And that someone that he expresses his thankfulness to is God. And the reason Paul gives thanks to God is because God is the giver of the gift. Now, before I go any further, I should probably clarify something here. As Christians, we worship one God who is three persons. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And because we worship one God who is three persons, we say our God is a triune God or a trinity. And if, and if this description of God, if, if it kind of blows your mind, well, you're normal. You see, it's pretty much impossible for us to, to wrap our minds around this concept of a trinity, how we could have one God who exists as three persons. But that's what the Bible teaches us about our God. Now, when we see the word God in the New Testament, sometimes the word God is a reference to the entire Trinity. But most of the time in the New Testament, when we see the word God, the word God refers specifically to God the Father. And that's how Paul is using the word here in 2 Corinthians 9.15. When, when Paul says, thanks be to God, he's saying, thanks be to God the Father, because he's the one who gave us the gift of his son, Jesus. Now, why did God give us this gift? Why did God the Father send his son to this earth to have him be born as a little baby? Have you ever thought about this? Well, I want to tell you why God gave us this gift. You see, God gave us the gift of his son, Jesus, because God wants to have a relationship with each and every one of us that will last forever and ever, for all eternity. God loves us, and he wants us to enjoy peace with him, and he wants us to have fullness of life. But do you know what we've done? We've robbed ourselves of experiencing God's peace. And we've robbed ourselves of experiencing the fullness of life that comes from being in a relationship with God. How have we robbed ourselves? 
Well, we've all chosen to do things that have displeased God. And these things that we do that displease God, the Bible calls them sin. And in our sin, it separates us from God. You see, when we tell a lie, that's a sin and it separates us from God. Or when we take something that doesn't belong to us, that's a sin and it separates us from God. When we use God's name as a curse word or, or when we use his name in some irrespect, irrespectable way or, or disrespectable way, that's a sin and it separates us from God. When we act selfishly or act greedy, that's a sin and it separates us from God. When, when we think we're better than someone else, we call that pride and it's a sin and it separates us from God. I can keep on going, but I hope you're starting to see the truth of what the Bible teaches. You see, the Bible says we've all sinned against God. We've all done these things. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46, the Bible says there is no one who does not sin. And in Romans 3.23, the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So according to the Bible, we've all sinned against God. And the bad news is that our sin separates us from God. It breaks our relationship with him. And it robs us of the peace and the fullness of life that we can only experience when we are in a right relationship with God. You see, the Bible says our God is a holy God, and, and that means God does not allow anything or anyone sinful into his presence. That's why, that's why our sin separates us from God. The prophet Isaiah, he says that your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Iniquities is just another word for sin. So, so Isaiah is basically saying your sins have made a separation between you and your God. And in Romans 6.23, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Now, when we hear that, when we hear the word death there, our minds probably automatically go to physical death, right? When we hear the word death, we think about that time when our, our physical bodies will shut down and stop working. Well, one of the effects of sin is physical death. And the fact that we all die physically, that's proof that we have all sinned against God. Now, we often associate the word death with physical death, but in the Bible, the word death often also refers to spiritual death. When Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, it's, it's referring to spiritual death in addition to physical death. And spiritual death, what's the definition of that? It's separation from God. And so do you, do you get the picture that the Bible paints here? Okay, according to the Bible, we've all sinned against God. And because we've all sinned against God, we're all separated from God. That's the bad news. And you know what? There's even more, more bad news. There's nothing we can do to get rid of our sin and to clear it from our records. You see, we're, we're all born with a, a corrupt, sinful nature. It's a, a sinful nature that has gotten passed down from our great, great ancestors, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, they were the first two people that God created, and, and they sinned against him. And, and when they sinned against him, it corrupted their nature. And they passed this corrupt, sinful nature on to their offspring, who passed it on to their offspring, all the way down to us. And you see, this sinful nature, that's what causes us to do things that displease God. But because we have this corrupt, sinful nature, anything that we do to try to pay for our sins, anything that we do to try to earn God's forgiveness, all these efforts that we make to atone for our sin, they're all tainted by sin. They're all tainted by our sinful nature, and, and therefore they're unacceptable to God. So that leaves us helpless, and that leaves us hopeless. We're all separated from God, and there's nothing that we can do about that.
Our sin separates us from God now. And you know what? It'll separate us from God for all eternity when we die. That means our sin will keep us out of heaven, which is God's dwelling place. So there's the bad news. But I'll tell you what, I've got some good news for you this morning. And here's the good news. Even though we've all sinned against God, God still loves us. And God loves us so much that he doesn't want us to be separated from him. God doesn't want us to be separated from him now, and he doesn't want us to be separated from him in eternity. So God did something. God did something so that our sin could be forgiven, so that it could be wiped clean off of our record, and so that our relationship with him could be restored, and and so that we can experience peace with him and fullness of life. Do you know what God did? The Bible tells us what God did in John 3.16. In John 3.16, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God loves us so much that he sent his Son into this world. That's what we're celebrating tomorrow. We're celebrating Jesus coming into this world. Jesus came into this world as a little baby, and he was born in a manger in the little town of Bethlehem. And then he grew up and he became a man and he, he lived a perfect life. You see, Jesus never sinned. He's the only person who has ever lived a sin-free life. Now, Jesus, he was miraculously born of a virgin and that kept him from inheriting the same sinful nature that we all have. And because Jesus didn't have a sinful nature and because Jesus didn't have any sin on his record, God could transfer our sin onto him And God could punish Jesus for our sin instead of punishing us. You see, I can't take your sin and be punished for your sin. I can't do that because I have my own sin that I I have on my record that I need to be punished for. But Jesus didn't have any sin on his record. So he could take our sin upon himself and he could be punished in our place. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. You see, God the Father, he sent his son Jesus into this world so that he could take our sin upon himself and die this horrendous death on a cross to pay the price for our sin. And John 3.16, that verse I just read, it says that if we believe in Jesus, that means if we believe that his death on the cross paid the price for our sin, it means if we commit to following him as our Lord, then we will not perish but have everlasting life. And John's speaking spiritually when he says this. When he talks about not perishing and having everlasting life, he's talking spiritually. John's saying that if we believe in Jesus' death on the cross, that it pays for our sin, and if we commit to following Jesus, that we will not be separated from God any longer. And we will never be separated from him again. If we put our faith in Jesus, if, if we believe in him and commit to following him, We'll have a relationship with God. We'll have peace with God that lasts not only now, but throughout eternity. And that's because Jesus will have paid for our sin. The Bible calls having this kind of relationship with God eternal life. And the Bible says that this this eternal life that we can have in Jesus Christ, it's a gift. Remember that verse I read earlier, Romans 6.23, it says, The wages of sin is death. That verse goes on to say that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, as the Apostle Paul, as he's, as he's thinking about this financial gift that the Christians in Corinth are going to, to give to the Christians in Jerusalem, 
he can't help but not think about this, this, this gift of Jesus and this gift of eternal life that God has given to him and to all who put their faith in Jesus. And when Paul thinks about this gift that God has given to him, that's when he yells out, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Paul yells out this because he wants to express his thankfulness to the giver of the gift. And that would be God the Father. In 2019, so about four years ago, there was a young man named Dakota Reed that tra tragically died in a car accident. Uh, Dakota, he lived with his parents in Virginia. And in January of 2019, so almost five years ago, I guess, he was, he was riding in the passenger seat of a car that pulled out in front of an SUV. And the SUV slammed into the car, and, and the injuries that Dakota stained in the accident were so severe that they killed him. Now, Dakota, he was only 16 years old when this accident happened. And Dakota's father, his name was John, and uh, John Reed, he decided to have his son's organs donated. Now, John had no idea where his son's organs would go or who would receive them, but John believed that his son's organs would fulfill God's plan to give life to someone who needed them. So John decided to donate Dakota's organs after the accident. Well, Dakota's heart ended up going to a man in Boston named Robert O'Connor. Robert had suffered from a heart condition for about 10 years, and, and it was getting worse. And if he didn't get a heart transplant soon, he wasn't going to live much longer. So Robert was praying for a new heart, and, and a couple of months after he really started praying for a new heart, his prayers were answered, and he received Dakota, he received Dakota Reed's heart. Now, Robert was thankful for Dakota's heart and for the new life that it gave him. But you know what he wanted to do? He really wanted to express his thanks to Dakota's father. You see, in a sense, Dakota's father was the giver of the gift because he's the one who, who allowed his son's organs to be donated. And so for over a year, Robert and his daughter, they, they tried to track down John Reed, Dakota's father. And eventually they did track him down. And so once Robert found out where John lived... He had his cardiologist make a recording of Dakota's heart beating in his chest. And then he took that recording and, and he went to the, the Build-A-Bear stuffed animal company and he had them inserted into a, into a stuffed animal bear. And he mailed that bear to John Reed. So now when John takes this, this bear and he pushes a button on it, he can hear his son's heart beating. And it's a reminder that his son's death meant life for someone else. And not long after John received this bear, Robert and John were able to meet in person, and Robert was able to express his thankfulness to John in person. Now, as I read about this story, and as I watched the video of John opening the Build-A-Bear box and listening to his son's heartbeat in there for the first time, it brought me to tears. You see, John, he, he, just, he just broke down when he heard his son's heart beating in that bear, and it brought tears to my eyes. But as I was reading this story and watching that video, I was reminded that it teaches us an important lesson. And the lesson is this. When we receive a gift, it's good to be thankful for the gift, but it's even better to express our thankfulness to the giver of the gift. Robert and his daughter, they understood that lesson. And that's why they spent a year trying to track down John Reed. They spent a year trying to track him down because they wanted to express their thankfulness to him. We well, you know in the same way we should be thankful 
for the gift that we have received from God the Father when he gave us his son. The death of his son meant life for us. And like I said, it's good for us to be thankful for that gift, but it's even better for us to express our thankfulness for that gift. Do you know, do you know that in the Bible, the expression, be thankful, only shows up one time? It's in Colossians 3.15. Just one time we're told to be thankful. Now, it's in the Bible, so we should be thankful. But by comparison, the expression, give thanks, in other words, an expression that means say thank you, that's in the Bible 56 times. So God wants us to be thankful, but I think even more, he wants us to express our thankfulness. And to whom should we express our thankfulness this, Christ uh, this Christmas? Well, we should express our thankfulness to God the Father, because he's the giver of the indescribable gift of Jesus. So I want to ask you, have you thanked God the Father lately for the gift of his son, Jesus. You see, like Robert O'Connor, we all needed a heart transplant. Our sinful hearts needed to be replaced with a heart that wants to live for God and wants to please Him. And when God the Father sent His Son Jesus and allowed Him to be crucified on the cross, He made that new heart available to us. So Christmas is a great time to express our thanks to God the Father. So when it comes to giving thanks this Christmas, that's my first suggestion. Give thanks to the giver of the gift. Now, my second suggestion is this. When we give thanks this Christmas, we should give thanks for the greatness of the gift. Not only should we give thanks to the giver of the gift, we should give thanks for the greatness of the gift. You see, Paul calls the gift that God has given us an indescribable gift. Other translations call it an inexpressible gift. No matter which way you put it, what Paul's saying is that words cannot describe this gift. It's too great to describe in words. And this is literally true. You see, when Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians, he wrote it in the Greek language. And the Greek word that Paul uses to describe the gift here that God has given to us, there's no record of this word ever being used prior to this. So apparently, as Paul was writing this letter to the Corinthians, and he was thinking about this gift of Jesus that, that God the Father has given us, he couldn't think of a word that described it. So he had to make up a word that basically means there is no word to describe it. You see, some things in life are just so great that words can't describe them. A few weeks ago, back on December 9th, the Columbus crew won the, the 2023 Major League Soccer Championship. And there's a player on that team, his name is Aiden Morris. And if you watch this game, as soon as the game ends and all the players from the Columbus crew are celebrating and, and, and going crazy, a reporter from Fox Sports, uh, her name's Jenny Taft, she goes up to Aiden Morris and she says, Aiden, congratulations on the win. Describe this moment for you. And she puts the microphone right in front of him. And he says, well, I don't think it's kicked in yet. And then there was a long pause. And the pause was so long that the, the interview started to feel a little awkward. I mean, have you ever been in a conversation and there was like that awkward moment of silence and, and you're just kind of standing there and you don't know what to say and they don't know what to Well, that's kind of what was going on here between Aiden and Jenny. They're just kind of standing there. Aiden's got this kind of blank look on his face with a big smile. And it just kind of went on for a while until it just kind of felt awkward. 
But Jenny kept the microphone right in front of his mouth because she was trying to force him to say something. So eventually Aiden just says, well, words can't describe it. Words can't describe it. Now, if that's the case when it comes to winning a soccer championship, how much more is it the case when it comes to who Jesus is and what he's done for us? Words can't even begin to describe the greatness of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. What makes Jesus so great? Let me just tell you about one characteristic of Jesus that makes him so great. He's the God-man. He's the God-man. Now, let me explain what that means. You see, in the Bible, the Bible calls Jesus the Son of God. Now, some people, when they hear that Jesus is the Son of God, they think that this means there must have been a time when Jesus didn't exist. And they think that because that's how it works in, in human relationships, right? The Father exists before the Son. But when it comes to God, it doesn't work like that. When Jesus is called the Son of God, that's an expression that means that he is equal to God the Father in every way. So Jesus is fully God, possesses all the attributes of God. Jesus knows all things. He can do all things, just like God the Father. And Jesus is eternal, just like God the Father. That means he has always existed from eternity past, and he always will into eternity future. Now, Jesus, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, he enjoyed all the glories of heaven. He enjoyed a perfect relationship in heaven with God the Father and with God the Holy Spirit. But then you know what? He was willing to set all of that aside. He was willing to give, give up his place in heaven to come to this earth to save us from our sin. I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in another one of his letters. It's a letter that he wrote to the church in Philippi. It's in the book that we call Philippians in chapter 2. Paul wrote this. He said, Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So in this letter to the Philippians, Paul's explaining that because Jesus loves us so much. He, he left the glories of heaven and he came to this earth. And when Jesus came to this, this earth, he took on a, a human nature. That's what Paul means when he says that Jesus was born in the likeness of men and he was found in human form. You see, when Jesus came to this earth as a baby, when he grew up and became a man, he, he never ceased to be God. But in some way that it's hard for us to imagine, in some way that we really can't describe with words, Jesus added a human nature to his divine nature, and he became the God-man. Before the first Christmas, Jesus was fully God. But ever since then, he's been fully God and fully man. And because Jesus is the God-man, this makes him an indescribable gift. Now, Jesus had to be the God-man in order to save us from our sin. He had to be fully God and fully man. He had to be fully God because in order to be the perfect sacrifice that would pay the price for our sin, in order to be the sacrifice that would be acceptable to God, he had to be fully God. But Jesus also had to be fully man. You see, we're humans. And in order for Jesus to die in our place, to be our representative before God the Father... He had to become one of us, and that's what he did at Christmas. Now, Jesus, he's the only person who is both fully God and fully man. 
And that means he's the only one who can save us from our sin. Now, we might not be able to express in words exactly how Jesus is the God-man, but what we can do is we can express our words of thanks to God the Father for giving us this great gift in Jesus Christ. And we should do that. This Christmas, we should give thanks to God the Father for being the giver of the gift. And when we thank Him, we should thank Him for the greatness of the gift. We should thank God the Father that He, he devised this plan in which His Son would take on a human nature so that He could save us from our sin. Because if God the Father didn't, didn't devise this plan, if Jesus didn't come and take on this human nature like ours, we would have no hope of being forgiven of our sin. We'd have no hope of heaven. Without the God-man Jesus, we'd all be lost and dead in our sin forever and ever. So this Christmas, give thanks to God the Father for the greatness of his gift. That's my second suggestion. And then the third suggestion, the third, third suggestion I have for you is this. When it comes to giving thanks this Christmas, we should give thanks because of the grace of the gift. Give thanks to the giver of the gift Give thanks for the greatness of the gift and give thanks because of the grace of the gift. You see, the reason that we should give our thanks to God the Father for this great gift of Jesus Christ, well, first of all, it's a gift. And second, we don't deserve it. You see, when God does something for us, when he gives us something good that we don't deserve, the Bible has a name for that and it's called grace. And the reason we should give God the Father thanks for this gift, this great gift of the God-man Jesus Christ, it's because we don't deserve that gift. Remember, we all sinned against God. That means we're, we're undeserving of His love, we're undeserving of His goodness. What we do deserve from God is His wrath. But God is a God of grace, and He gave us the gift of Jesus Christ. He gave this gift to undeserving people. I want to tell you about a lady named Amy Carroll. So two years ago around this time, Amy and her husband, Barry, they were getting ready to celebrate their, their 30th wedding anniversary. Now, when Barry had proposed to Amy three decades earlier, he was a teacher and he, he wasn't making much money. And so he worked hard and he scrimped and he saved because he wanted to buy Amy this really nice engagement ring that had a nice diamond in it. Now, when Amy received this, this ring, this engagement ring from Barry. She knew how hard he had worked for it. And she says that when she accepted Barry's marriage proposal and when he put that ring on her finger, it instantly became her most treasured possession. And even after 30 years, that ring was still her most treasured possession. Well, after wearing the ring for 30 years, the diamond was starting to get a little loose. Hmm, I'll have to take care of that sometime, Amy said to herself. But you know how life is, you know, life gets busy and, and doing things like taking a ring to get, the, to, to get it fixed, well, those things kind of get pushed off. They get put to the back burner. And that's what happened to Amy. Well, one day, just a few weeks before their 30th anniversary, Amy was washing the dishes after dinner and, and she felt something sharp poke her right hand. Ouch, what was that? She exclaimed. And then Amy, when she pulled her hands out of the soapy water, she saw right away what had poked her right hand. It was her engagement ring. You see, the diamond had fallen out, and the, and the prongs that were holding it in place, that's what had poked her hand. 
So Amy gasped in horror when she saw that the diamond was missing from her ring, and, and she began to frantically search for the diamond in the water. Well, Barry came into the kitchen when he heard all the commotion. What's wrong, he asked. It's gone. Barry, it's gone. What's gone? The diamond you gave me, it's gone. It fell out of the ring. I can't find it. So Barry immediately joined the search. And so the diamond wasn't in the sink. They figured that much out. So where could it be? Amy had no idea where this diamond could be. She had been out and about running errands all day, and, and she had no idea where or when the diamond had fallen out of her ring. And so Amy and Barry, they turned the house upside down looking for this diamond, and, and they rechased Amy's steps from that day. But it was all to no avail. They never found the diamond. Why did I neglect getting those, those prongs checked, Amy sobbed. This is, this is all my fault. Well, weeks went by, and Amy was still upset about the ring because the, di the diamond never did turn up. And then on the day before their 30th anniversary, when, when Barry realized that this diamond was gone for good, he said to Amy, he says, here's what we're going to do. Tomorrow's our 30th anniversary. And before we go out to dinner, we're going to stop by the jewelry store, and you're going to pick out a replacement diamond for your ring. Amy says she sat there in stunned silence for just a moment, and and then she started to protest, and she started to say, no, no, we can't do that. Barry, we can't do that. I, I blew it. I lost the first diamond you gave me. I don't deserve another one. What I deserve is I deserve for you to yell at me and tell me how bad I am for losing the diamond that you gave me the first time. And that's when Barry took Amy into his arms and says, Amy, I love you, and I want to give you this gift. And Amy said, that's when it hit her. This is grace. I've read about grace in the Bible, but, but this is it. This is grace. This is what it looks like. I blew it. I messed up. I don't deserve a new diamond. I deserve my husband's wrath, but he's going to buy a new diamond for me. He's going to give me this, this gift because he loves me. And he's going to give me this gift because he wants to give this gift to me. Barry, Amy said, thank you for your grace. Now, friends, what Barry did for Amy... That's a picture of what God has done for us. We blew it. We sinned against God. And we don't deserve anything good from Him. We deserve His wrath. But you see, God loves us so much that He gave us the gift of His Son. God sent His Son, His very own Son, into this world to take on a human nature so that as the God-man, He could pay for our sins by dying on a cross. In 2 Corinthians 9.15, Paul calls this an indescribable gift. And I want you to know that God is, is holding out this indescribable gift of forgiveness in Jesus. And he's, he's offering us this gift to all of us this Christmas. But God's forgiveness, it doesn't become ours until we receive his gift. You see, I can hold a gift out to you all day long, but that gift doesn't become yours until you take it from me. And the way that we receive God's gift of forgiveness in Jesus is we put our faith in him. That means we admit that we have sinned against God. And it means that we believe that Jesus came to this earth and that he died on a cross to pay for our sin, that he rose from the grave three days later. And it means we commit to following him as our Lord for the rest of our lives. That's how we receive God's gift of forgiveness in Jesus. And so if you've never done that, if you've never received God's gift of forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ, why don't you do that now? You can walk out of here this morning. You can walk out of this building knowing that all of your sins are forgiven. 
You can walk out of here knowing that you have peace with God. You can walk out of here knowing that your place in heaven is secure. So if you haven't yet received that gift, why would you not receive it now? I can't think of one good reason why you would walk out of here not having received this indescribable gift that God has given us in Jesus Christ. And for those of us who have received that gift, let's give thanks to God this Christmas. Let's give thanks to the giver of the gift, to God the Father. And let's give thanks for the greatness of the gift, for the God-man, Jesus Christ, who, who died in our place. And let's give thanks because of the grace of the gift, a gift that we don't deserve. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much this morning. We are here to give you thanks, God, because you have given us an indescribable gift. Lord, we are humbled and we are amazed that you loved us so much after we sinned against you, after we turned our backs on you, broken your commands, failed to live up to your standards. God, after we've done all those things, you still loved us and you loved us so much that you sent your son, your one and only son, into this world to be born as a baby so that he could have a, a human nature like ours and so that he could grow up and live a perfect life and then die as a perfect sacrifice to pay the price for our sins. God, you did all that because you loved us and because you wanted a relationship with us, not only now, but one that will last for all eternity. And God, you've made this indescribable gift available to us. You're holding it out there. And God, I pray that if there is any here who have not received that gift, that they would do it now in this moment, that this would be the time when they say, God, yes, I admit I have sinned against you and I deserve nothing good from you. But I believe that you sent your son, Jesus. I believe that he was the God-man, the one who, who took on human flesh and then died as a perfect sacrifice on a cross so that my sins could be forgiven. And God, I pray in this moment that those folks would commit to following Jesus Christ as their Lord so that they can be forgiven and know, God, that their sin has been paid for, that their record has been wiped clean and that they can now come into your presence and enjoy the fullness of life that you've intended for us from the very beginning. Oh God, we give you thanks this morning. We give you thanks as undeserving people for this indescribable gift that you've given us. And it's in the name of that indescribable gift, Jesus Christ, that I pray. Amen.